looking between the space between the cabinets and the fridge for the first time in like a hundred years and what's there several pennies and oh the mexican declaration of independence Welcome to Unbelievable, the podcast where I tell two unbelievable stories from history to my good friend Kurt. But here's the catch. One of them's real, one of them's fake. And I gotta figure out which one's which. That's right. This week, I am going to take over the reins because I am distraught from last time how Kurt fooled me, bamboozled me, won me over with his lies. As he is one to do, I will I will admit. But he did that last week and I am ready to take back my uh, right honorable throne. So I'm going to be taking over. I have two really, I've been, I was telling Kurt before recording, uh, doozies of a story. Hopefully hopefully you're, you're settled and you're strapped in, Kurt. I hope you are. I'm ready. I feel like things got a little a little intense last week with the competitiveness most people don't know this but after every recording Luis and I are so keyed up that we meet in between Chicago and Mexico and have a fist fight we, we met up somewhere in somewhere in Juarez and just really screamed at each other from the other side of the border it's very cathartic that's true we're here to have have fun and have a good time today this is the episode where we bring the fun back to this to this podcast <laughs> before we begin since i will be uh speaking for the majority of the episode i i want you kurt to have a bit of a baseline from what's fact and what's fiction so kurt do you have a quick little fun fact you're gonna Share with us today. Oh, yeah. I got your fast fact right here, buddy. Let's hear it. From the 1940s to the 1970s, Yale, Harvard, and some other Ivy League schools required freshmen to pose nude for a photo shoot. True or false? I feel I feel like that's false. You think false? Yeah. It is actually true. And I have some more information that makes it even more interesting. All right. The photos were intended to be part of a large-scale study of how rickets developed <laughs> and involved sticking pins into the backs of subjects. The study, because it was a lot of prestigious schools, included a lot of well-known subjects such as George Bush, Hillary Clinton, and Meryl Streep. After information about the study leaked, the pictures were destroyed and the study was denounced, but some surviving photos are now in the Smithsonian, and also in 2020, some appeared on eBay, implying there may be some photos in private collections. Whoa. So that's a lot of knowledge for you to just have and do what you want with now. That, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's a lot of knowledge. That's for sure. Some, someone out there has a picture of acupunctured nude Meryl Streep just above their mantle place. Just imagine uh, convincing someone to, to get to take pictures of like nude pictures of them say, oh, it's for rickets. <laughs> I'm doing this nude photo shoot for rickets awareness. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that fast fact. And now, without further ado, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Now, Kurt, are you a fan of the hit movie with Nicolas Cage, National Treasure? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was I was really hoping it was going to be National Treasure. National Treasure is a national treasure, in my opinion. It's a classic. It's a classic, yeah. And But it's a national treasure, I will admit, just for the U.S., right? Like, it's true. I watched it here, but there's really not a lot of cultural relevance to that movie in Mexico. However, in the spirit of me loving that movie and wanting to apply that context to my hometown, this story is about Mexico's Declaration of Independence. Whoa! I'm going to give you a little bit of historical context to this. So, Mexico became independent in 1821, and that 
was after a long 11 years long war with Spain to try to get rid of the yoke of colonial Spain that had been impacting Mexico for the last 300 years. Right. That's on the that's, uh, you know, always on the shopping list for a lot of developing countries. Get rid of the yoke of imperialism over the course of the next 11 years. You know what I mean? And if you're in Latin America, most of the time it's Spain. Uh, yeah, so. true. <laughs> Bring in Simone Bolivar, you know, see what you can get done. Exactly. In 1821, in specific, the 27th of September, the Mexican insurgent army had essentially won every battle and were marching into Mexico City to claim their victory. After securing their victory in the big city, the next day, they went about drafting a Declaration of Independence, essentially saying, hey, we just fought this war and we're considering it won. So this is us becoming independent. And they went up to the vice royalty and other Spanish author authorities and said, sign this. Once you sign it, we are independent. Right. Okay. Which they did. So on the 28th of September, 1821, the Declaration of Independence of Mexico was signed into effect essentially making Mexico now a independent nation. It, of course, it was not seen as such as for the rest of the world, but that's a different story. Now, here's what's interesting. Mexico became independent, not as a republic or a federation, what we now consider Mexico, but it actually became an empire. Mexico became independent as an empire under Agustin de Iturbide. So Mexico began its independent life, no longer a subject of Spain, but now a subject of a Mexican emperor. So this was the beginning of the first Mexican empire, right? And that's how Mexico was born, essentially. That's nice. That's that's a big jump. Let's go from, you know, we're not in charge of anything to not only are we in charge, we're in charge of everything. A whole empire, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, right. And keep that in mind because the fight began for independence in Mexico for freedom and, and equity and equality for everyone living within Mexico, no matter their race or whatever, and, and freedom from bondage of colonial powers. But even if that's how the fight started, the fight ended with Mexico being under authoritarian control <sighs> once again. Again? Come you know, on. Keep that in mind. This is a very early royalist view of Mexico, okay? Okay. This first Mexican empire from Emperor Iturbide did not last long, literally until 1823. So 1821 to 1823, very short empire. Had a good run. Yeah, Mexicans don't like being ruled by another powerful supreme being other than the Catholic god. <laughs> 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 they barely even made it out of the free trial. They barely paid for the exactly. subscription and all that. Oh, no way. Cancel this. This is terrible. <laughs> yeah, basically. So it didn't last long, but... Sorry, it's been COVID longer than the first Mexican empire. That is basically, COVID <laughs> has lasted longer than independent imperialist Mexico. So when this Declaration of Independence was signed, they actually drafted two copies just one for safety. You, you, there, it's always good to have a backup, right? Right. Which makes sense. Here's the catch, Kurt. Once you make a second copy, so you're going to lose the first one. You know, it's like a Murphy's <laughs> Law situation. And indeed, it was lost. So the first draft of the Declaration of Independence was set permanently in our Congress, essentially so that senators and, and representatives would see the thing that made Mexico, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. The other one was sent to 
the National Palace, what we call, or Imperial Palace at the time, essentially our White House, our seat of government. It was sent there just to be displayed, again, as a sign of pride for the nation. The first empire ended, some years went by. We're just vibing here in Mexico with two declarations of independence. Double the fun. Double the independence. <laughs> double, double the fun, double the independence. That's Mexico, baby. More declarations, more independence, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially. But we're about to take a turn for the worse because as luck would have it, in 1830, Kurt, one of these declarations was stolen. Oops. A, very, a veritable 1830s Nicolas Cage, but Mexican, stole the Declaration of Independence from the seat of government. And it was actually taken to Europe at the time. Okay. The reason it was stolen is because regardless of whether or not an empire continued, there were always going to be royalists and people wanting a empire or wanting right. a, a monarch, right? So people in favor for the monarchy in Mexico stole this Declaration of Independence and brought it to Spain to essentially say, this is the declaration of an empire. It deserves to be in the safe hands of an empire, essentially. Okay. And it was brought to Spain and noblemen in Spain now kept this document as a way to essentially say Mexico was never lost, right? How do we know this? We have their Declaration of Independence right here. <laughs> it changed hands throughout the 30s, the 1830s, until it reached the house of this man named Hernando de Mendoza, a Spanish nobleman. Uh, sorry, let me just say, this is ridiculous. You get rid of Spain for, you, you know, you get loose from Spain for five minutes and somebody gives them the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Yeah. Can't win. All, Can't. all roads lead to Spain. All roads lead to Spain stealing from you. <laughs> the Kurt. <laughs> That's just the subtitle of every Mexican history book. Let's be honest. Uh, no, no fault to Spain. We love you. But, but anyway. It's like when movies, movies in the 90s and the 80s, they used to always be the bad guys of the Russians. Yeah. Because every, everybody's worried about Russians. Mexican history, it's like, guess who the bad guy is? Spain. Yeah, from around Spain, 1521 yeah. to, I don't know, 1860, the bad guy was always Spain. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it ended up in the hands of this nobleman named uh, Hernando de Mendoza. And Hernando de Mendoza was special or, I guess, different because as compared to the other people that had this document, he was close to Isabel II, who was the queen of Spain at the time. He was some sort of secretary, some sort of high dignitary in the royal court of Spain. So okay. he now had this document, and of course he would brag about it with the queen of Spain, because why wouldn't you? Right. You know, if, if, you're, showing, if you're showing this woman the document that was written and signed as a defeat for her great-grandfather or like her grandfather, like, of course, you're going to show it to her. Right. Once it got to the hands of Isabel II, it started being displayed around most of royalty in Europe. So visitors from all across Europe would come to Spain and one of the big, I don't know, the big tourist attractions would be to see Mexico's independence declaration. Notably, Queen Victoria would travel to Madrid to visit Isabel, who coincidentally also her cousin, and they would chat about the declaration of Mexico. And again, word began to get around that this document was now in the royal palace in Madrid, so much so 
that some people such as Victor Hugo, mm-hmm. the French writer who wrote things like uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables, Victor Hugo actually had heard about this and, and was really fascinated by the story of this document of an independent nation being uh, essentially humiliated by the high courts of Europe. And he started to grow very empathetic of this document and of the Mexican people saying, this is a shame. You know, what the hell? Why would you do this to an independent nation? That's eventually there were two camps, the, the royalist camp and the people. The royals said, yeah, of course we're going to have Mexico's Declaration of Independence. And the people said, why would you? <laughs> so I just I just realized how, how long was it before people figured out where it went when it was stolen? Because it, it disappeared from Mexico and it showed up in Spain. How long did it take for people to connect those two dots? It was a bit of an open secret that the Declaration of Independence was now in Europe. P- people in Mexico didn't really know that where exactly it was, like people in Europe did. We have to remember it's 1830s. Direct communication is not terribly is easy. Right. However, the Mexican people knew it was in Europe, most likely in Spain. But what were they going to do, right? We had to deal with our own problems, or Mexican people had to deal with their own problems going on with, like, the birth pangs of a new nation, right? They should have done, like, a heist movie, like, just how we planned it from the start. We always had the copy on display because we knew someone would try to steal it, and now we have the original and the copy's gone. See, here's the thing, Kurt. It's It starts to get more complicated. This is essentially all context. Oh, am I jumping the gun? I'm sorry. A little bit. But, you know, Mexico wasn't terribly worried about it. They're like, okay, we're kind of mad that... Europe mm-hmm. has this document, but we has still have also an original document, like the copy, but it's an original copy, still right. always in display. Now, the first declaration was stolen in 1830. If we fast forward 30 years of this document just being in the high courts of Europe, what happens around 1860, Kurt? I will tell you, Maximilian of Habsburg has started to be seen as a candidate for Mexico's second empire. Oh, Maximilian cameo. Maximilian Look out, cameo. everyone. Luis has entered the chat. <laughs> Maximilian's in the mix. <laughs> and, and Maximilian of Habsburg, one of the things he said is that he will only become emperor of Mexico if the people from Mexico ask him to be emperor. And, of course... Mexican dignitaries that wanted Maximilian to be emperor would forge documents saying, hey, we asked every single Mexican their opinion on a new emperor, and everyone was a resounding yes, you know? Uh, (laughs) But one of the things... Election fraud. It was stolen, basically. They stuffed the ballot boxes. (laughs) Maximilian saw this as an opportunity. as like, okay, I need to get the Mexican people to love me. What can I do? These... Mexican emissaries from Europe brought him this Declaration of Independence and said, you can give this back to the Mexican people and they will love you. Wow. And Maximilian (laughs) said, that's a great idea. I will bring Mexico their Declaration of Independence back and they will love me. And that was one of his big resounding like points of, of popularity, or at least his imagined popularity, is I am bringing you back your independence, Mexico. And of course, by being your emperor. But I'm bringing you back your independence. Did, did that work? Um, well, I mean, maybe for like six months. Let's remember, Kurt, Mexican empires have a tendency of not lasting very long. Right. <laughs> Maximilian became emperor in 1862. 
And by 1867, he was killed <laughs> by but, the Mexican but like, people. Were people excited that he's bringing the declaration back? Some people. Like, it, th- there was a huge propaganda movement saying, look, this man deserves to be your emperor because he's bringing you back the independence you so long have lost. Stuff like that. So it's unclear if people were genuinely excited or if it was all propaganda by pro-Maximilian conservative Mexicans from the time. Because right? I just, I feel like if I was going to go on a first date with someone and before I, I meet up with them, I went and stole their dog. And then I show up to the first date with their dog and I'm like, look, I brought him back. That I feel like that would not go over well. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. See, and, 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 and also you have to remember, Kurt, we had another copy of this. So even if the, the other one was stolen, Mexico went 30 years with their own copy and like they didn't really need their declaration of independence back because they had one you know right so it really wasn't a huge success as we as as i've told you before maximilian of habsburg the second mexican empire emperor was not popular he was shot four years after hit the beginning of his throne really in a terrible fashion he's now remembered as a big enemy of of Mexican history. So, yeah, Maximilian's empire did not last very long, and this Declaration of Independence was a big point of contention, too. And so much so that the aforementioned Victor Hugo, who at this point was in exile, he was in exile from France at this point for speaking out against the king uh, or against royalty. He actually reached out to Mexico and said, hey, Mexicans, don't fall for a new emperor. Like, I want you to be independent. Don't fall for the lies that this man is bringing you back your independence. So Victor Hugo, even from hearing these stories as a child or as a young man of this lost Declaration of Independence, was now urging Mexicans to not fall for this Declaration of Independence trick. Which I think it's really nice. It all goes full circle. Maximilian's empire crumbles so fast, you have no idea. Within a year of his death, Mexico is back to running without an emperor. But in this interim, all of his just foreign dignitaries and doctors and personal assistants were either uh, killed or sent back to Europe. One of these people was his doctor, Dr. Fisher, Samuel Fisher. And his doctor actually smuggled out of Mexico this Declaration of Independence that Ma- that Maximilian had brought back. Again, they're taking it back. He he was in a way very pride, uh, very proud, saying, "I am going to make sure that this declaration that you Mexicans have not taken advantage of, we're taking it back because you don't deserve it." Essentially. And it went back to Europe, and it stayed in Europe for, well, 40 years, or at least until the end of the century. Just let them have their declaration. Come on, dude. (laughs) Yeah, so this declaration that had already been lost for 30 years is now going back. It It was in Mexico for four years, and now it's back to Europe. When it stays in Europe, it kind of changes hands, goes through families, and industrialization is happening right now. So, you know, this idea of a declaration of independence is kind of lost to everyone. Now... Turn of the century Mexico, early 1900s Mexico, is a very volatile time. You've probably heard of Porfirio Diaz, who was a Mexican president that was a president for about 30 years. Does his name have a, a, a prefix that people sometimes use, Luis? Yeah, sometimes he is known as Don Porfirio Diaz. Don That's how my... Porfirio Diaz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But I would say I would advise be careful of saying that if you're down in Mexico because he's seen it as big bad boy of oh, Mexican history. Well, <laughs> yeah, we're, stop the podcast. We are canceled once again. Pull the plug. Stop the podcast. <laughs> but he he is currently the dictator of Mexico. And early 1900s, there's again this rise in insurgencies trying to fight back against this government, essentially a bit of a repeat of what had happened 100 years prior during the Mexican War of Independence. And there's growing, growing anger between, uh, I guess you could say, the proletariat, poor farmers, and the big aristocracy. In, in Mexico, there's a huge social divide to the point where there are some armed conflicts in an effort to try to quell these distastes, just end this disagreement between people. Some pro-aristocracy and still pro-Europe Mexicans had this wonderful idea. They concocted this plan to make the Mexican people realize that they need Europe or they need an outside power. What did they do? Their plan was to set fire to Congress. And what's in Congress, baby? The original copy of the Declaration of Independence. No! And so in 1909, the Congress building at the time was burnt down alongside with it the Declaration of Independence, meaning that there was now only one Declaration of Independence of Mexico. And where is it? It's in Europe. Can Mexico please just have one Declaration of Independence and nobody bothers? Just one, please. I think if we have an add another subtitle to most Mexican history books is, can, we, can everyone leave Mexico <laughs> alone for 20 minutes? Please? Yeah, the, the, can, uh, can everyone leave so, Mexico alone, please? Princes, especially you, Spain. Looking at you, Spain. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so essentially 1909 it burns down this plan as expected backfired horribly on on these royalists why because in 1910 the mexican revolution of the proletariat farmers and the aristocracy began a war a civil war that would last for about also another 10 years so This fire that they set to Congress was, in a way, the hypothetical fire that ignited the conflict between castes in Mexico at this point. And so now Mexico is, without a declaration of independence, finding the Civil War. The Mexican Revolution ends in uh, the 1920s. Mexico continues living out its life, trying its best to recover again and rise from the ashes like a glorious phoenix. Eventually, in about 1950s, 1960s, a Spanish family realized they had this document in their they possession. They didn't know? Are you kidding me? Or, or they, didn't, they didn't give it the, uh, a, a big importance, right? To the point where around the 1950s, this family said, Hey, this has been in my family for several generations now. I am going to... Can, you guys can just have it. Oh, okay. It wasn't like it was in the attic and they're like, oh, we're going through some of grandpa's old war photos. <laughs> oh, look, the Mexican Declaration of Independence. Been here under the old baby crib for 30 years now. <laughs> <laughs> it was behind the fridge. Yeah, it was behind the fridge this whole time. <laughs> Looking between the space, between the cabinets and the fridge for the first time in like 100 years. And oh, what's there? Several pennies. And oh, the Mexican Declaration yeah, of Independence. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually this family says, Mexico, this is rightfully yours. Here you go. Uh, 
So that was until 1961, Kurt. Uh, wow. The 21st of November of 1961. My dad was alive at this point. Wow. When the Mexican of De- the Mexican Declaration of Independence was returned to Mexico after being in Europe essentially since 1830. And now Mexico, once again, has a Declaration of Independence. But what did they do with it? They put it in our national archives under so much security that we don't know where it is in the <laughs> national archives. It is behind several locks in a, in a, in a climate-controlled room in, with the most security ever because we are not losing the Mexican Declaration of Independence again. Yeah, I think that might be the smart decision at this point. <laughs> <laughs> to just yeah. keep it locked and, away. Yeah, and it has the highest security detail of any item in like the historical archives of Mexico. That that's even including like pre-Hispanic stuff and things that belong to Hernan Cortez or Moctezuma. Wow. This 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 bad boy is locked up so tight that not even a cunning genius as Nicolas Cage could ever get his hands on it. I don't know. You you I don't know. You better watch out. You better hope we don't get the chance to try because you underestimate Nick Cage. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the first story, Kurt, about Mexico's lost Declaration of Independence and then found again. Lost and found Declaration. So really, it's a story of love, really. Okay, so a lot of declarations to keep straight. So the 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 copy burned, right? Yes. Okay, and so they now have the original. When they drafted the the Declaration of Independence, they made two. They they made two original ones. Uh huh. The, the original and the backup. And the original was placed in Mexico. The backup sent to Europe. Then the original burnt. The backup was still in Europe. And it right. and it just okay. came back. But it is an, an original document with the original signatures of the people that were there also. Like the people that signed the Declaration of Independence signed two pieces of paper. And because it's the original, the map to the Aztec treasure on the back of it is still intact. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the secret map to El Dorado is in the back of the Mexican Declaration of Independence. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. That's it. So yeah, that's the first story, Kurt. Really, really wild. Uh, spans a long time, but it's, it's, it's national intrigue, if you will. Kurt, are you ready for the second story? I am ready. Hit me. All right. We are going to take a time machine and return back several hundred years before the Declaration of Independence of Mexico was signed. And we're going back to the end of the 1600s, the 1680s to be precise. And we're going to the other side of the world, to France. We are in 1686 Versailles, France. We are in the court of Louis XIV, also known as Louis XIV, also known as the Sun King. <laughs> we are in his court right now. Why does, why does the Sun King make it sound like it's his street name? Like <laughs> King Louis the Street Lizard XIV? <laughs> Louis Goblin Mode the 14th? <laughs> Le Petit Goblin. Yeah, there it is. Oh. It's nice. So we are we are currently in the court of Louis XIV, who in around January of eight of sixteen eighty-six is starting to feel a little bit of discomfort around his butt region. Uh oh. Never a good sign. His buttocks are inflamed, and the area around his anus is having some issues, to say the least. Louis XIV is developing a lot of discomfort 
in his butt to the point where it, he, he finds it uncomfortable to sit down on his throne and he finds it impossible to go out riding horses one of his favorite pastimes that's tough and he discovered that he grew a fistula in his rectum very cool which is a sort of 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 wart a sort of inflammation not necessarily hemorrhoidal but it's it's similar vein right there there's something that there's something there that shouldn't be there and it's really really bothersome it's so much so and i i apologize i'm going to get a little bit gross with these descriptions but hey it's 1680s science so the stories say that this fistula in his bum would even uh excrete some pus uh at times to the point where he would he would have to change his clothes around two to three times after dinner just to keep it in in safe it was bad it it was it was bad he needs a he needs a king diaper you know he does i feel like they could do that very stylish it's like like purple velvet and it's got you know some like gold clasps on it (laughs) i think he could have a very stylish diaper that's just but, my opinion. But beyond the diaper part, Kurt, this this is a, a, an actual just anal issue, right? The anal anal fistula, and it it is messing with him to the point where it's it's getting to his health. Now, physicians of the time were treating this with exclusively enemas, thinking that enemas okay. would fix fix this. Reportedly, throughout his life, Louis the Fourteenth had administered around two thousand enemas. That's just a quick little fun fact. Weird, weird flex, but okay. He can afford it. But eventually, eventually, <laughs> I treat myself. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm gonna take a relaxing day off and go go get an enema administered. Long day work. Just need something to take the edge off. <laughs> exactly. Fill her up, boys. <laughs> um, but eventually, the king said, "Enough was enough. This is causing me too much pain and too much suffering. I need to get this fixed. I need to get this removed." So amputate they, the butt. Amputate the butt. He needs a surgery done. He's he's finding that his nightly enemas are not doing the trick anymore. Mm. He he is done chasing the dragon of enemas and realizes he needs something stronger, <laughs> aka a surgery on his anus. Um, Just to feel something. And at this point, physicians didn't administer surgeries. That was something that was only done by barber surgeons at the time, yeah. which were, as the name suggests, barbers that had a knowledge of the of the human body just enough to do surgeries so they call out for surgeons eventually a royal decree comes out to find a surgeon by the name of charles francois felix we're just gonna call him charles cool that's a lot easier to say charles francis felix charles france charlie francie as his friends charlie francie so this uh charles francois is a barber surgeon from avignon and he gets a royal decree. He is known to be very good. Okay. And there's a royal decree that gets sent out that says, hey, Charles-Francois, hey, Charlie Frankie, you are going to operate on Louis XIV, your godly king. You're going to operate on his rectum. Is that is that something that he specializes in, or is that is it just a thing he knows how to do? No, this sort of surgery has never been done, Kurt. Oh, oh, we're all, we're in uncharted territory here. We are in uncharted territory. Louis the Fourteenth's uh, butthole. It is currently uncharted territory. I was thinking, imagine being the 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 butt specialist barber in France, and you know it's got to be kind of rough profession. Imagine the luck. The king's got a wart in his anus. 
I had all paid off. Years it all of paid off. Studying the rectum. My parents thought I was crazy. All my friends <laughs> thought I was crazy. I knew my abilities to <laughs> perform surgery on an ass would come in handy someday. This is what I've been preparing for my whole life. <laughs> but no, no, no. He was just a barber surgeon. He was told, hey, this is the ailment that the king has. You are going to be performing the surgery on him. And you can imagine the huge responsibility that this would be to the point where he said, okay, I will operate on the king, but give me six months to train. And now we cue the training montage that took six months for Charles Francois. What do you think he did it's to practice? Eye of the tiger, it's rising. It's the eye of the tiger. There's a fistula in my butt. Stuff like that. Louis the anus is the eye of the tiger. I just realized it. That's what the song meant all along. <laughs> Kurt, no. Okay, serious, serious answer though. What do you do to prepare? I guess you're gonna have to inspect a lot of a lot of rectums. You're kind of you're 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 pretty close, Kurt. So what he did was he recruited, or I guess not recruited. He was given seventy five men that were imprisoned around France. Most of them peasants. 75 men in relatively good health who were prisoners, and since the crown decides what to do with prisoners, they became lab rats. If this happened today, uh, they would they would get uh, college students who need an internship to sign up for it. Essentially, <laughs> this is this is that, but back then. So Charles Francois starts doing trials of of figuring out how to perform the surgery on these men. So he starts doing trials on these men, some of which who die. By the way, oh no, there's a there is a death count to this man's surgery, but. Uh, again, he's not a doctor. He's just a barber surgeon. So there's no Hippocratic Oath to save life at any chance. You know, yeah, people may have died, but at least his integrity was still 100%. You know? now, and he made dear friends along the way. <laughs> the real anal fistula was the friends we made <laughs> along the way. Christ. But anyway, uh, six months passes. This man did his training. He is, he is shadow boxing in the men's locker room. Uh, preparing for this surgery. It is now November 18th, 1686, and it's the day of the operation. King Louis, along with his physicians, are put in this room. Uh, he sat on this table or in this uh, bed, uh, face down, ass up. Oh, yeah. You know? Charles Francois comes in with his instruments of surgery, some of which he invented precisely for this operation. So one of the instruments he had for this operation was a retractor. You probably know what this is. It's essentially an instrument to open up the anus, open up the rectum so that you can really dig in there. And he brought in what is called the bisturi royal, also known as the royal scalpel. Okay. It's a, it's a scalpel that was, quote, royally curved. So imagine a scalpel that is around a ruler's length. Oh, big boy. Right? Like a like a 12, 12 inch, 12 inch long, 30 centimeters, and it's curved. It it like tapers off to a very thin blade and it just curves. That was so that Charles Francois could get an easier access to cut this fistula, which needed to be cut. Wow, that is terrifying. It really puts in perspective. How bad this fistula must have been. You know, like, if half of these things happen when I'm King Louis, that I'm I'm just laying on the table and I've got the, yeah. the, the, the spreader thingy and the big old curved knife, I'm out of there. I, and mind you, uh, there's no anesthetic at this time, Kurt. Yeah. 
We're going in raw. Yeah, this man is taking the brunt of all of it. Yeah. This operation, the surgery, is reported to have lasted around three hours. Oh. And at one point, King Louis is said to have said, is have turned around and said, is it over, gentlemen? Finish. <laughs> I don't want you to treat me as a king because I want to recover as a peasant. Uh, <laughs> like this man is just like just wants to be done wants to make sure this this operation is finished right. because of course you would want to be but the operation is successful he lives king louis lives and re reportedly it takes around two days for him to be walking around and only about a month or two for him to be fully recovered to ride again on a horse okay that's that's not bad that's pretty fast pretty fast so it was a very successful successful surgery because he was the king and there was such a devotion around him and at this point he lived in versailles which is a huge complex and his entire court lived in versailles everyone lived in the same house essentially right. meaning that it was like a small city it was a small community of all these people that hear every single living breath of the uh king and are devotees of the King Louis. So much so that the popularity of this surgery began to rise. Little by little, you began seeing members of the court covering their buttocks with bandages and decorated bandages because that's how the king was treated when he was recovering with bandages around his butt. And now it was fashionable to wear these bandages. And so a lot of the court started wearing that. But that's not where it how how it crazy it gets kurt because people now wanting wanted to get this royal surgery people were aching to to receive this <laughs> life-saving miraculous surgery that the king had now that's cool people were pretending to have fistulas anal fistulas so that they would be treated with this same sort of surgery some of them did have fistulas and receive the royal scalpel some of them didn't have fistulas and were turned away and some of them didn't have fistulas and yet still received the operation just because just so they could say that they did the same thing that the king did and because of this some people even died uh because they were wanting to get louis the 14th ass surgery <laughs> and as for charles francois Felix. He never picked up that royal scalpel again. After the surgery, considering it was such a huge success, he was awarded 300,000 francs, which at this point would translate to around 30 million US dollars. He was given a palace in the province of Normandy in France and a noble title. So now he was a noble just for performing this surgery. Because this was so successful, the king was so impressed that he decided to make surgery an official medical field. Mm -hmm. So the school of surgery was actually founded in 1731 after just big advancements that were made after this anal fistula surgery that was made by Charles-Francois Philippe. And, and that's essentially where the story ends, but a quick little fun fact at the very end is that because King Louis was so happy and excited and lived a while longer after the surgery, he seemed to be in very good spirits to the point where some composers wanted to write songs and compose melodies to, you know, essentially say, hooray, the king is alive and God save our king, right? 
So the composer Jean-Baptiste Lully composed a song called Gandu Sauf Le Roi, which means Great God Save the King. And it was just a tune that was just written for this occasion. Years later, in around 1714, George I is king in Britain and decides he wants an anthem and remembers this tune he had heard in France a long time ago and asks his composer Handel, George Frederick Handel, to write a song from it. And based off that French tune of Grand Dieu Self Le Roi, he composes, I mean, Handel composes a tune named God Save the King, which is now the official national anthem of the United Kingdom, either God Save the King or God Save the Queen, all because of Louis XIV's anal fistula (laughs) surgery. Yeah, little domino, Louis XIV's butt hurdy. Big domino, British national anthem. (laughs) Essentially. And that's the second story, Kurt. Wow. I mean, I was I was invested, but right at the end there, we really kicked it up a notch, huh? I thought I'd end it on a high note. Yeah, we got we got weird there at the end for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you mean it didn't get weird when I started talking about Louis the Fourteenth's asshole? It was weird the whole time. I mean, from the start. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's a a lot to digest. So the surgery worked then. Yeah, very successful. And he actually and King Louis the Fourteenth actually lived for several years after that. He lived uh, until 1715, which the surgery was in 1686. So That's so long ago to be having someone stick a knife up your butt. Oh man! So that is that's a lot a lot to take in. A lot of butts. Very very butt centric story. Very butt centric story. Yeah, I mean it's the French. What do you expect? True. Okay. Uh, is it <laughs> is it in that case? Is it time, Luis? I think. I, I think it's time, Kurt. If you don't have any other questions, I believe it's time for deliberation. That was nice. We got real synchronized on that one. So, Kurt, two stories. The first one revolves around Mexico's lost declaration of independence that was stolen, brought back, stolen again, and then given back after a hundred years, over a hundred years of conflict. That's the first story. The second one, the one you just heard, is Louis XIV's crazy night out on the town. Uh, and by crazy night, I mean surgery. And by out on the town is uh, on his butt. <laughs> okay. What do you think? I think they both sound they both sound very, very plausible to me. I feel like my tolerance for what is a ridiculous story has been raised a lot by doing this podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm much, much easier to believe something outlandish now. A regular, a regular person would hear both of these stories and say, no way. Like, would, would yeah. freak out. <laughs> we, we've grown desensitized to these ridiculous numb. moments. I think, like I said, I find both of them plausible. I feel like the Louis XIV butt story had a lot of little offhand details. And uh, if you came up with all these, all these details to try to fool me, I think it's a gamble that is going to pay off because I just based on the details, I feel like the Mexico declaration of independence story is not true. The other one, the other one seems a little more probable to me. All right. So is that your final answer? That is, that is my final answer. All right, Curtis. Well, I am going to inform you that of the two stories you have chosen, the Louis, the 14th butt surgery, and you are correct. You won. Oh yeah. You win this time. It is a true story. The butt surgery did happen. 
the butt surgery <laughs> is remembered in history and the current British national anthem is based on a tune written off the surgery wow, of Louis XIV's butt. That is wild. The whole butt surgery thing. Okay, that's a wild story, but the national anthem being tied in there. That's the, the detail that really breaks my brain. I wonder It's 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 really the the last the last 5 meters of the race that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we punched yeah, up. That, that really really drives the the knife in a little deeper. The curve oh, knife. Man. The curve knife. <laughs> Okay, so so did anything happen with the Mexican Declaration of Independence? Yes, actually, Kurt. Um, I invented most of the details, but the there were two drafts of the independence. That is true, and one of them was placed in Congress in in the House of Congress, essentially, and the other one was lost in 1830. But no one knew where. Literally, <laughs> it just disappeared. We we have no idea where it went. No one really cared about it because it was lost to time oh and never never found no it was because in 18 in 1860 in the 1860s when maximilian of Habsburg was here two years into his reign someone said hey sir i think we found another declaration of independence <laughs> and he said oh that's pretty neat didn't do anything with it didn't really care for it uh, when on, he died Max. it was taken back to to europe it was smuggled out of mexico but the burning that happened in 1909 in Congress, that was not a ploy at all. It really wasn't a ploy to start a revolution or anything. It just burned down out of carelessness. Oh, but so it did burn. It did burn and they didn't care they didn't bother to get rid of it because they forgot just how important it was for <laughs> history. And eventually in 1961, this man only returned the paper because his father had said, yeah, my final will and testament, give this back to Mexico. Nice. And yeah, he, he gave it back to Mexico and now we, we just kind of have it here. So let me, let me ask your personal opinion, Luis. When the, when the declaration was missing, do you think it was misplaced or did somebody take it? And then generations later, their family was like, oh, we should give this back. Or was it, you know, between the fridge and the wall? For however many years. You know, I think I think they probably had it hung up, but it had been there for so long that it had become invisible to the people that live there, you know? Okay. Like, I, I'm living currently in the house I grew up in, right, Kurt? And there's a poster behind me of Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean. Nice. And I don't notice it anymore. I really, it's next to the TV, and it's just there. It's just mm -hmm. a common piece of art there. I don't notice it. I've had friends come into my room and say, why the hell do you have a huge poster of Johnny Depp as Captain Jack Sparrow? And I said, oh, I, I don't know. Kind of just forget it's there. I think that's the same case with the Declaration of Independence and the, these houses where it was at. I think people just thought that that's been in the family for years. I think it's a Declaration of Independence. Might be. Who knows? All right, Kurt. So, yeah, you got it correct this time, which... You did get me on the details. There were just too many details I needed to keep in the in the butt story. I, I really couldn't help myself. There always are. There's always too many details in the butt story, you know? Always too many details. But that brings up the tally of uh, how many stories we have gotten correct, Kurt. I am still on the lead with four, but you are quickly catching up, Kurt, with three. 
So we are four to three on correctly guessed stories. And I don't know, Kurt, next episode, we might we might either reach a tie or I might settle into the victor. We'll see. We'll see. I'm closing in on it. You better watch out. You can almost taste it. That brings this episode of Unbelievable to an end. Thank you so much for listening. We really enjoy doing this week after week. Did you get the story this time? Let us know. Please, were you able to see past my clever disguise, see past my amusements, and were you able to guess correctly, or did I fool you like I have once before to Kurt? Let us know. We are on social media. You can find us on Twitter at UnbelievablePC, as well as on Instagram at UnbelievablePod. Please reach out to us there if you'd like. And we'll see you next week when Kurt takes over and tries to fool me with more smoke, more mirrors. Until then, see ya. Bye, everyone.